We present The Letter I Always Meant to Write, written and read by Nigel Banks. Dear Jess, or my dear Jess, or should it be dearest Jess? He couldn't decide, but then, on reflection, what did it matter, as this was a letter he was never going to write? He should have written it, though, all those years ago. But then, like so many other things in his life, he'd only realised the necessity of action when it was too late. He opened his eyes to take in the view from his hospital bed. It had changed yesterday. Or was it the day before? The passage of time had become a kaleidoscope in his mind, with events from years ago colliding and melding with the present or recent past. The resulting confusion, aided and abetted by the morphine drip, was sometimes disconcerting, at others entertaining in a hallucinatory sort of way. He'd never been brave enough to try LSD or any of the other mind-expanding drugs which were easily available during his student days. So here he was, true to form as a late developer, experiencing drug-induced visions tripping the light fantastic down memory lane. There were worse ways to move towards your final curtain, he mused. And he was in the end game. Of that there was no doubt. They had obviously moved him into the small side ward so that he could shuffle off his mortal coil without drawing attention to himself. The other week, or maybe it was only a couple of days ago, The chap in the bed opposite had gone in the night. His bed and personal effects had all been cleared and made ready for the next incumbent, who duly arrived the following morning. And so it went on, the remorseless cycle. Who would have his bed, he wondered, after he had vacated it? What would be his story? Was his condition treatable or terminal? Did he have a wife, a family who would visit and bring grapes? Why had the grape become the clichéd gift, the myrrh of the hospital visitor? Fairly soft and yielding to chew, yes, but acidic, surely, and potentially harsh on an invalid's digestive system. He realised that, as usual, his thoughts had meandered a long way away from their original starting point. How to begin his imaginary letter to Jess? What did he really want to say to her anyway, after all these years? It was a bit late for abject apologies and grovelling pleas to be allowed a second or third chance. She'd been dead for... How long was it now? Four years? Maybe longer. His befuddled memory wasn't up to the precise chronicling of past events anymore. He used to be pin-sharp at that. Jess was always deferring to him about dates, times and places... She had been a now person, so even things that happened the previous week might as well have been ancient history. Was I there? became a standing joke between them as she struggled yet again to recall a recent social event they had attended, or the names of familiar people, films or plays they had seen together. It was one of the many sharp contrasts in their characters and temperaments. They made an odd couple, that was for sure. Somehow it had worked. For a while, at any rate. 
until the inevitable cracks appeared and the initial physical passion had waned. Then there was the age difference. She was eight years his senior. It hadn't mattered in the slightest in the beginning. In fact, her greater worldliness had been a very positive influence on his approach to life. As soon as she hit forty, though, and the laughter lines became crone's crow feet to her when she looked in the mirror, she changed. The thirty-a-day habit was kicked into touch. She took up jogging, which turned into marathon running, and became a vegetarian. His bemused reaction to these seismic changes in her lifestyle had been met with defensive hostility on her part, and the new circle of friends she attracted were definitely not to his taste. Inevitably, they drifted apart. Her freelance work took her away from home more frequently, it seemed, and whereas in the past her homecomings had been the signal for joyful and passionate reunions, now they merely revived the tensions. His way of coping had been to throw himself completely into his work and acquire a dog for companionship. It had happened by chance. The relative of a colleague was moving abroad and had to give up their dog. He had taken pity on the poor mutt, and before he knew it, they had formed a strong bond. Now that he had become a partner in the law firm, he had clout, and was able to take the dog into work with him. It would lie quietly under his desk, and his lunch breaks would be spent taking it for walks in the nearby park. The dog would occasionally growl at a client, and he came to rely on its intuitive character assessment ability. He knew that some of his junior colleagues thought him eccentric, but he didn't care. Jess had often mocked him for being boringly conventional. It had been done affectionately in the early days, but the jibes became ever more snide as their relationship soured. In fact, the dog had been the straw that broke the camel's back. He smiled at the mixed animal metaphor, knowing how much that would have annoyed her. She had embarked on an open university course in English literature later in life and became a stickler for syntactical correctness and stylistic precision. In their early days together, she would laugh off his attempts to correct her misspellings or grammatical solecisms as pathetic pedantry. Life's too short to worry about such crap. You understood perfectly well what I was trying to say, didn't you? Well then... She would fix him with that characteristic quizzical look in her dancing green eyes and her slightly lopsided smile, which would immediately disarm him. He hadn't realised that beneath that carefree veneer she resented her lack of further education. He had misread a lot of signs then. He would plead to be given a chance to do better. He would tell her in his letter that he had learned to read the subtext now. It had taken him a long time, and he still wasn't perfect at it, but would try so hard to get it right this time. If only she'd give him another chance. He hadn't bothered to warn her of the dog's arrival, in the hope that it would be a pleasant surprise when she returned from her latest work foray. He hadn't warned the dog either, and it had fitted into its new surroundings so easily that it viewed Jess as an intruder and gave her a nasty nip on the ankle. Her reaction had been vitriolic. 
She had unleashed a stream of obscenities and fled to the bathroom, refusing all his offers of first-aid assistance. When she finally did emerge, it was to summon a taxi to take her to a friend's house. After a few days, during which she had refused to answer any of his phone calls, she sent him a carefully worded letter, informing him that their relationship was now officially over, and she would be returning with a van at a precise time and date to collect all her possessions. She was insistent that he, and the dog, absent themselves while she and her friends carried out the removal. His legal training automatically kicked in at this point and sent him down the worst-case scenario path. She might take things which didn't belong to her, trash the place, or worse still, change the locks and forbid him and the dog re-entry. This knee-jerk reaction caused him to do something monumentally stupid even by his standards. He left her a voicemail, in which he warned her of the consequences of any unlawful action on her part during the repossession of the aforesaid goods and chattels. In an attempt to remove any personal animosity about the situation, he had resorted to using stilted, formal legalese. He now shuddered at the memory of this bone-headed miscalculation. He had risen the following morning to find a hand-delivered letter from her on the mat. It was typewritten, which was unusual in itself, as she always preferred to write letters using her elegant flowing calligraphy. The tone was deliberately formal and restrained, but the underlying resentment was evident. She thanked him for pointing out the legal consequences of any unpermitted removal of items from the household, and went to the trouble of attaching an inventory of the things she intended to take. She had not been able to resist the temptation to include a personal insult, which she did by means of a postscriptum in her own hand. She called him a loser and an emotional cripple. So, that was that. She had moved out, and their seven-year relationship had duly ended. He had tried contacting her in the ensuing months to mend some fences, but she resolutely refused to answer his calls or letters. As he lay there, looking out at the gathering gloom of a late February evening, he reflected on the impact of that loss on the rest of his life. He'd had other relationships, none of which had lasted, because he couldn't help but compare them with what he had known with Jess. And now here he was, about to undergo that final rite of passage, from one world to the next, and precious little to show for his threescore years and twelve. Who would come to his funeral, he wondered. There wouldn't be many there, as he didn't have any close family. A few former work colleagues, perhaps? Or friends from the bowling club? He pictured the scene at the crematorium, a coffin, and three or four isolated mourners dotted about. Not like Jess's funeral. The place had been packed, and people were queuing up to deliver eulogies. He had felt rather awkward being there, but had been determined to attend. They had achieved a rapprochement of sorts in later years, and kept in sporadic touch through Christmas cards 
and the occasional phone call. During one of these, in which she was clearly the worse for drink, she had floored him by wondering why he had never asked her to get married. She had already been married twice when they met, and vowed never to repeat the mistake, so he had automatically written it out of the equation. "'I would have turned you down,' she had chortled drunkenly, "'but it would have been nice to have been asked.' He was suddenly gripped by a stabbing pain which commanded him to writhe in agony. He barely had the strength to press the button on the morphine pump. He waited, hardly daring to breathe for the drug to take effect. He felt his senses dulling and the room beginning to swim away from him as the gates of oblivion opened to welcome him inside once more. Just before he drifted off into unconsciousness, he realised what his letter would have said if he'd ever got round to writing it. Dear Jess, sorry I was such a cripple, but I'm better now. Will you marry me? Love, Ralph. Ralph.